Hi, I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. My guest today on the podcast is Fran Moore. According to her webpage, Fran works at the intersection of environmental economics and climate science. That's a pretty humble description, though, and to me it doesn't quite capture the scope of her interests. Some of Fran's work measures the human impacts of climate change, like how warming affects agricultural yields or economic growth, and how people might adapt individually or collectively. In some of her earliest work, which we talk about in this conversation, she addressed how adaptation is framed in international negotiations and how, in particular, it's seen very differently by richer high-emissions countries and poorer low-emissions ones. And recently, she's done some fascinating work using social media to understand how people perceive extreme weather events and how that might be changing. So you can see that Fran works from many different angles, using many different tools, on the ways in which what happens in the physical climate system relates to what happens in human society with all its messiness, including political and psychological dimensions, in addition to economics per se. So we talked about Fran's research and her life and career to this point, from her origins in the UK through her higher education in the US to her current position as an assistant professor in environmental science and policy at the University of California, Davis. And I took the opportunity to have Fran educate me on some things I should know more about, like what is in the integrated assessment models that are used to price a social cost of carbon and how the discipline of climate economics measures what is valuable, it's not just dollars, and thus how climate causes damage. From there, we got into a broader conversation about the relation between science and politics, the roles of climate scientists and academics generally in the public sphere, and to what extent we are contributing, we academics that is, positively to the fundamental societal problem versus not doing so. And at this point, this episode becomes the one that, for me, is the most satisfying one yet in this podcast because it most directly gets at my motivation for doing it in the first place. This is not an accident. It's a consequence, instead, of how Fran and I have got to know each other over the last year. So late in the conversation, Fran describes how some climate scientists in their mid to late careers go through an identity crisis where, in her words, they have an awakening in terms of, I thought I was doing one thing, and it turns out I haven't been doing that. So I myself have been having that crisis, more or less exactly, for a few years now. Trump made it a lot worse, but it was brought on overall by the lack of action on climate in the U.S. and globally, and the sense that our science really wasn't making much difference, in addition maybe to some of my own career issues. So about a year ago, just before COVID hit, I spent a month on the West Coast, and I gave a talk at a few climate science departments where I managed to put into words what's been bothering me. I got a positive response overall, but Fran was the person who responded the most strongly and who most clearly had been thinking similar thoughts and struggling with some of the same questions. So we talked at length a few times after that, and this interview is just the most recent of those conversations. Fran has thought a lot more seriously and a lot more coherently than the average climate scientist has about what is the point of what we're doing here and how we might connect our work better with our ideals as citizens and human beings. She has some profound insights into these things, and she expresses them clearly. So talking with Fran has helped me to think through these questions that are at the root of what our science is about, or at least what it should be about, so maybe it will help you too. 
I love this episode and I'm so happy to share it with you. Let's listen to my conversation with Fran Moore. So uh, thank you, Fran, for doing this. Uh, welcome to thank our you. podcast. And uh, as we normally do, uh, if it's okay with you, I'd like to start with your biography. Mm -hmm. uh, and from the very beginning, where are you from? <laughs> So I, uh, I was born in London. I grew up uh, for the first kind of 18 years of my life. Um, I lived in London. Um, my English family is originally from Yorkshire, um, from the north of England. Um, but I were, I'm half American, so my, my mother is English. Um, but um, my brother and I grew up uh, in London. I was going to say, I, I, I couldn't tell if it was British or what other English-speaking country. You have a bit of the accent, but you don't sound totally... Yeah, I get that a lot. It's because I've been in America for so long. <laughs> so a lot, I get it. I get kind of Australian or kind of South African. It's like right. different, but been... you don't sound English. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but Australian and South Africa would have been lesser on my list of guesses, but the possibilities mm -hmm. have crossed my mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so the first 18 years, so you're going to school in London and everything, mm -hmm. uh, like in the city, really, not... Yeah. Not, uh, yeah. And did you get interested in science from an early age or? or? Yes, yeah, so I, I was. Um, that's part of how I ended up in, in the U.S. for college it was um, in the U.K. You specialize, especially when I was there, you specialize very quickly in terms of your education. And so I had narrowed down at 16 to kind of only studying uh, math and science. Um, and so for two years from like 17 to 18, I did math, physics and chemistry and that was it. Mm. And that then kind of narrows the scope of what you are kind of eligible to do at university. Um, and I had a bit of a, a crisis <laughs> kind of, uh, kind of realizing, you know, maybe I want to do science, but maybe I want to do something else, or maybe I want to do something a little bit broader. Um, and I, you know, kind of started looking for that reason at the US where there's this kind of liberal arts curriculum, mm -hmm. you know, you kind of have this broader education in undergrad. Um, and I, I took a gap year after uh, high school, which is very common in the UK. Um, and I traveled and I worked. Um, and as part of that, I applied to colleges in the US. Well, actually, I think I, I only applied to one. I applied to Harvard and I got in. <laughs> and so okay. that's kind of where I went uh, for undergrad. I see. Yeah, that's interesting. That I mean, we, I know that the education system specializes people much earlier in the UK, but I haven't had that much sense that there's a big brain drain because of, you know, that a lot of people leave because of that. But I can understand that. No, uh, I, I don't think. I could, mean, I had that connection to the US um, through my yeah. mom. Uh, and, uh, you know, I had family in the US. So it wasn't quite as a kind of an extreme move uh, as it might have been for other people to do at that age. Um, but yeah, for, for me, that was definitely the draw with the idea, you know, you can like, you know, start taking, you know, after this extreme specialization for two years, kind of start to explore kind of other things for, uh, for a bit and potentially ma major in other subjects. Although I ended up majoring in a science, which is probably what I, what I would have studied in the UK as well. Um, but I did enjoy the liberal arts curriculum. What did your folks do? Uh, my father is a engineer. Um, and so he originally trained in uh, electrical engineering, but he became a civil engineer or he worked for a construction company, um, kind of eventually kind of managing large infrastructure projects. Um, 
And my my mom kind of was originally a lawyer um, and then kind of retrained. She got an MBA. That's how she met my dad. And uh, once she came to the UK, kind of became uh, moved more into finance and banking and had a career in the city. I see. So I see you had some science in your family. Yes. In, in no, sense. but not not a kind of academia family, you know, kind of right, uh, at right. least among like, at least for my parents. There are a lot of that. If you hang out in mm-hmm. academia, you find out how many people inherited it in some sense. Anyway, so you go to Harvard um, and study earth science. So were you hanging out with the climate people already at that point? Yes. Um, although at the time there was, I at least I was less focused on kind of modern climate change. I did my senior thesis uh, on paleoclimatology. So, and there was a big emphasis on that in the department when, when I was an undergrad. Um, Mm -hmm. And so we, you know, that was a big part of the curriculum. Um, People were really interested in it. And I kind of uh, focused on that as part of my, my senior thesis too. I I took a couple of classes, I think on kind of climate change today and the atmospheric uh, sciences, but um, not as much, mostly paleoceanography and stuff like that. So what, what was the question of your senior thesis? It was on the oceanic anoxic events uh, in the late Cretaceous. Ah. So there are these periods where you have these like limestone deposition and then you get this sudden um, kind of band of organic material and it, it seems to be kind of widespread. So it was like maybe global, I think. I don't know. Like, I'm sure there are kind of people listening to this who like, know far more about this than I do. Um, I'm not one of them, though, so you're ago. safe. <laughs> Um, and so I was studying kind of the rare earth elements kind of across kind of one of the one or two of the like these major um, major events. And, you know, they're, they're, they're interesting. You know, this was a period of very high CO2 in the atmosphere. It seemed like these were associated at least potentially with the major disruption to the ocean circulation. Um, and so there are certainly kind of maybe not direct analogies to kind of what we're what we're doing now, um, but certainly kind of there's relationships there. Who was your advisor for this? Um, That was with um, Dan Schrag. And then I worked uh, mainly with uh, one of his PhD students. I see. I see. So you do the paleoceanography senior thesis at Harvard. You're in the United States. And then um, I don't have your whole CV memorized, but I know you end up at the Yale Forestry School. Was that a direct no, I, I left and I went to work in uh, D.C. And like, I feel like a lot of my, my transitions have been fairly uh, serendipitous and uh, um, poorly thought through. <laughs> I applied for one job when I finished college. I got that job. I, and that brought me to the D.C. area. Um, and I started working in a kind of environmental consulting firm, or at least like the bit I was in, we did a lot of kind of environmental impact statements for the federal government. Which one? Which firm? ICF International. Oh, yeah. They're big and famous. Yeah. 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 The big contract they had at the time I was there uh, was huge for the site compared to the size of the company. After Hurricane Katrina, there was this big program to kind of distribute money to people who were affected. And they kind of ended up um, running a lot of that um, and sending people down to Louisiana to like survey houses and things like that. I was not doing any of that. I was doing these rather tedious um, kind of environmental impact statements um, that the federal government performs, but typically the government, they contract out a lot of that work um, to this like universe of like private, private companies. Like Um, for construction projects or for? Yeah, for for infrastructure projects. So one of them was, do you know the Strategic Petroleum Reserve? 
I know what it is. Yeah, so it's, it's, I mean, it's really amazing, right? They like, they, there are these big salt domes in uh, the Gulf Coast and they just like mine them out with water. They like dissolve them and they fill them up with oil. Uh, and then this is a kind of oil reservoir in case the nation's, you know, access to the international oil market is disrupted. And there was this period in 2005 where they were considering expanding that and kind of adding some new facilities um, to to kind of increase the capacity of that reserve. And so we were doing the environmental impact statement around the kind of different options for, for where that might occur. That's the one, that's the one I remember. Um, um, I'm sure there were a couple others. And did this job influence your thinking about what you wanted to do next in some way or how, I mean, what? Oh yeah. I didn't stay there very long. <laughs> it was very, it was very boring. <laughs> like you want to think that like you're, you know, you're working on these great things, which it's, it's true. Like it, you know, it's, this is part of the, you know, the environmental regulatory infrastructure that we've set up to kind of make these types of decisions. But on a day-to-day -day basis, like there was, there was a lot of tedium. And so I left pretty quickly. Um, I left after six months and I went to work in uh, kind of more think tanks in DC. Um, mm. And that's where I got more involved. You know, if you you arrive in DC and you have a degree in earth science and, you know, what's your comparative advantage? Like it's definitely climate change, you know? And so that kind of got me in the door, I think, on um, at some of these environmental think tanks to start writing about and analyzing at first climate policy and then kind of subsequently kind of environmental policy more generally. It's interesting your experience in the consulting firm. I mean, I um, I had four years between undergraduate and graduate school and I've always kind of had a positive inclination towards people uh, who have other experiences, you know, in between because it seems to me that independent of anyone's sort of ability or or what their motivation might have originally been, it's really, really useful to have as a point of comparison, you know, some other experience, because if you do something else and then you end up in academia, at least, you, you know, you, it's a little more of a well-informed conscious choice. You mm -hmm. know, it, it, I think people who come straight through sometimes they really start to doubt whether they've chosen the right thing after mm -hmm. a while, but yep. if you've done some other things yep. and been somewhat unhappy with them, it helps keep you yeah. focused. Yeah. <laughs> if, if undergrads come to me for advice, I always recommend taking at least a year or two years kind of working and doing something. I think it firstly like helps you get more out of graduate school, whatever that ends up being, because I think you have a better idea of what, what it is um, you want to do. Um, and then I think it also helps terms in, in terms of kind of working in a kind of a professional and office environment and kind of making that step away from a kind of student uh, working style and a st student living style into a kind of more professional uh, setting and then taking that into grad school. And I think that's generally a healthy thing for a lot of people. I think it's both good to have that sense of a professional way of working uh, and to bring that into the into the academic environment, but also it makes you appreciate the informality and the freedom mm -hmm. and all the other things that in academia that it's easy to take for granted if you've never lost them. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, yeah. Um, yeah. It's not that we don't have a real jobs. It's just that they're real in a different way, right? <laughs> <laughs>
yeah. I once re I recently had a, a recently graduated PhD student say she was going to go get a real job, and it's like okay, I, I, I can take that, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> we do think our jobs are still real. But anyway, so okay, so um, so how did the next transition happen then? So so you're working in the think tanks and yeah, I think eventually you you kind of realize that for career advancement for whatever you know like grad school has to be kind of the next step and um i again just applied to one place <laughs> i think I'm, I'm like i've disorganized about it or not particularly well thought through but uh yeah i went to yale forestry school or at the time it was the yale forestry school they've now changed the name to yale school of the environment um oh, to really? do a master's okay. degree mm-hmm um, and that was a great experience, uh, two years. And I, at the time I, I was absolutely convinced I would never do a PhD <laughs> and that. Why? Be... Wait a second. Let's, let's wait, let's yeah, not yeah. stop. <laughs> let's hang on that for a minute. Like, why were you absolutely convinced of that? Um, coming out of undergrad, I, I didn't have a ton of confidence in nicing my abilities. Um, mm, mm. even though I did well, um, in a lot of classes, I was a little unsure of myself and I think Harvard can be a kind of a bit of a rough environment. If not, I wouldn't describe it as nurturing. <laughs> um, and, mm. uh, I think, I think my self-confidence took, took some shocks and, uh, with that combined with, um, really the time frame and you know thinking you know i'm kind of was more familiar with the uk system you do a phd in about at least at the time it was about three years and here yeah. it was you know this big time commitment of five years and just really think it that seems like an awful long time when you're kind of in your early 20s <laughs> less <Yeah>. than now <laughs> um and it just seemed like such a large time uh commitment into kind of an uncertain payoff um right and that was really the only aspect i think Right. Uh, so the thought was maybe you'll rise higher in the sort of think tank environment or something. Yeah, with a, yeah, yeah. With I, I, had intend, I had intended to go, I think, either to gov into government or into the kind of environmental NGO kind of think tank world. And I did apply right. to a few of those positions. Um, right. I think the thing that really changed the course of my career was um, in my first year at Yale, I applied to the NSF Graduate Research Fellowship Program and was very, very surprised when I got it. You know, you use one year of it and I had a couple of years of that and I was like, oh, wow, you know, it seems, it seems like a good idea to at least look at some PhD programs and consider um, that as an option. Well, I mean, the NSF Graduate Fellowship is definitely designed to train people who are going to continue mm-hmm. and succeed and they don't have to, you don't have to stay in academia to make an NSF graduate fellowship worthwhile, but it's certainly an outcome that should please them, I would think. Yeah, uh, I, and I'm definitely, <laughs> I'm definitely someone who was like in economics, we call it on the margin, you know? So like, it's definitely, I think the case that if I hadn't have got that, like I would probably be having a very different career right now. Right. But because you and I have spoken of it before, I know that the time at Yale, you know, influenced your subsequent thinking. Mm-hmm. And I also know from from having some prior uh, indirect contact with the Yale Forestry School that it's not a lot of it isn't really about forestry. Mm-hmm. It's just for those who mm-hmm. <laughs> don't know anything about it. That's a you know I can see why mm-hmm. they changed the name. That was a little mm-hmm. bit of a, a historical artifact. So what I mean, what did you get out of that time? Yeah, yeah. So I I made some good, really good friends, um, and had you know it's just an amazing place for you know people who care about the environment, are very passionate. And uh, because I was in a master's program, you know, a lot of people are really outward oriented and they're interested in kind of going out and 
really kind of making making change. Um, and so that's it's just a very kind of dynamic and stimulating environment to be in for a kind of two year period. But I had gone in on this kind of research based masters, which is slightly different from what most people do. So I really like the flexibility of it in terms of what classes you could take. And then you wrote a massive thesis at the end. And so I studied the, um, at the time, it was this period when the Copenhagen climate negotiations were, it was kind of the run up to these big yeah. international climate negotiations. It was supposed to be the deal um, to follow Kyoto. I mean, it all seems like so you know naive <laughs> this whole thing right now but like that was the idea right we had the kyoto protocol and yeah. this was going to be the next step in the kind of global climate yeah. ambition i wanted to kind of you know learn about this process and experience it and become an expert on it and so as my my senior thesis oh, my sorry my master's thesis was um i studied how adaptation was negotiated in these in these international mm. talks in the run-up mm. to Copenhagen and at Copenhagen. Um, and I interviewed, I kind of attended a lot of the negotiation sessions, not just the big ones, but these kind of smaller ones that were happening like in between. Um, and I interviewed a lot of people and then I did this kind of qualitative textual analysis um, of those adaptation talks and kind of how adaptation was it, it was a it was an interesting time to think about adaptation because it really had like was only starting to get on this like kind of international agenda, um, mm. or it had really really taken off maybe just like five years before. Um, but it was this kind of major point of contention, or it was, it was a major piece of the negotiations. And what's interesting, if you look at it, it's very clear that there were these kind of claims for restitution from um, poorer countries. Mm. Um, and that, and that those have always been there, right? That like, you know, richer, large industrialized countries are kind of destroying the climate and, you know, we're on the front lines of this and we're going to suffer. And like, you know, there should be some form of like international kind of monetary transfer um, yeah. to to fix that or to, to partially kind of rectify that. And that line of negotiation got kind of managed into this technical kind of discussions of adaptation policy and it got kind of managed into this institutional structure of the kind of development funding and and mm. kind of international fl uh, financial flow through through development assistance um in a way that to some extent served to sideline those um those kind of explicitly restitutional claims but if you talk to developing negotiators from developing countries they they still come back to that right and so there's this kind of tension about what exactly um you know the purpose of international adaptation policy and financing is can you say a little more about that i mean my memory of copenhagen i remember two things one i remember remember it as feeling like an absolute failure i mean even maybe to a greater degree than the ones before and since i just remember it just mm -hmm. felt like a a really really totally unsuccessful um the other thing I remember is uh, is um, president uh, or was he president or prime minister Nasheed, the head of the Maldives, oh, yeah. who became yeah, famous yeah. there, and yeah. I, I ended up meeting him later because we had a field campaign. It's a whole long story, but so I, I knew I know that too that adaptation, you know, early on was kind of taboo, and the you know the a lot of people involved in climate policy didn't want to talk about it because it seemed as a you know, a, a kind of admission of defeat on mitigation to talk about adaptation. And now we're in a place where everybody knows you have to do adaptation. 
And I guess this was sort of in the middle of that or maybe early in that transition. But can you say a little more to elaborate on how the technical management um, sort of derailed the restitutional claim? Like what's the, how did that work? Well, so what, what, what I ended up focusing a lot on in my uh, thesis was this, these like financial transfers and like what, what was interesting to me was I want, I came to this and I wanted to talk about kind of justice and fairness and these kind of norms and these people, these, you know, who I was talking to would keep coming back to this question of money and like financing and, you know, these kind of technical kind of like boring to me, questions about exactly how kind of money was managed. And what I came to realize is the reason they do that is because that's, you know, this is the real transfer of resources. You know, like you can talk a lot about kind of these norms, but like what really matters is how much money is there, who's getting in, who decides. Right. Um, and what, you know, what, what it can or should be spent on. So traditional development finance has been kind of donor country controlled, right? It's kind of been we're going to give you money for like this project. And, you know, the normative structure around it is kind of this, like, you know, um, I'm controlling this um, and I'm going to say, it's my money. I'm going to say what it can be used on, which that really contradicts this restitutional framing. And what right. you saw emerge therefore with these in adaptation finance, you, you had this kind of norm where you'd have half and half. So you'd have like, of the governing body, it would be half developing countries and half developed countries. And um, they'd kind of jointly decide. And you saw this evolution of these norms around how you access this, this financing that are really only understandable in this context of kind of restitutional financial flows. So you see this kind of residue of it. But like, you know, at the end, there's also this very strong power imbalance between these countries. And, you know, the right. US is not interested in you know, furthering discussions of, you know, financial compensation for climate damages at an international level. You know, that's and just as a fact, and they they have a lot of control of the agenda because they're, you know, a big, powerful country. Um, and so, you know, these these claims still get made, but they tend to be kind of marginalized in the in the process, just from the kind of raw power <laughs> uh, interests that are involved. Okay, so so you do that. And then decide to stay on, mm-hmm. at least in part because of the NSF uh, yep. <laughs> money. Yeah. And so, yeah. So what happens after that? And So I, again, applied to one PhD program. <laughs> the PhD applications were due right at the same time as Copenhagen. And so, you know, so it was all in December, you know, and that, and that kind of winter. Um, so it was not a kind of major focus, you know, it was... We were like preparing to go to Copenhagen. I was preparing my, my research. I was organizing a lot of uh, students from Yale to go to kind of uh, as observers to to observe it. Um, so it was just a massive kind of undertaking. So anyway, that's why I um, I put in applications to Stanford to the um, this interdisciplinary PhD program. Um, and you know, I kind of felt like the questions I wanted to answer were interdisciplinary in nature, and um, this seemed like a great program to kind of pursue them. Um, I think I, you know, valued the the flexibility and the, the freedom um, that it offered. And um, yeah, so I, I went to Stanford for the PhD to this. It's a little program. Um, it is in the School of Earth Sciences, um, but it's not a department. So there are no, there are no kind of faculty kind mm. of 
in like officially in the program, instead of a student, you're able to go out and kind of recruit um, faculty to be your advisors or to be on your committee. Um, and you have to have two advisors in different departments, two main advisors. I was kind of interested still in this question of adaptation, but in terms of, you know, how I was studying, it took a real turn um, towards more economics and more climate science, which is kind of what I ended up doing in the PhD. So what's the program called and who are your advisors? It's called the Emmet Interdisciplinary Program in Environment and Resources. So we usually shorten mm-hmm. that to EIPA. And uh, my advisors were David LaBelle and Larry Goulder. Oh, okay. David LaBelle, he does kind of statistical work on climate and agriculture or um, yeah. or at least that's kind of what he was doing at the time. And uh, Larry Gould is in the economics department there. He's the kind of does a lot on kind of energy, economics and carbon taxes and environmental economics. So the economics was, was it new to you at that point or had you done yes. some of it before? <laughs> yeah. And that's the, that's the other interesting thing. You know, now I would say probably the discipline I'm closest to is, would be environmental economics. And there is zero chance that I would have gotten into any environmental economics program. You, you know, you need so much preparation um, in terms of class and coursework to to get into those programs. And I just, you know, I had none of that. And so I'd taken one environmental economics class as an undergrad um, and otherwise it was totally new to me. And so I jumped in and Larry Goulder said, oh, you know, I'm going to expect you to take this like, you know, this PhD sequence uh, in the economics department. So I jumped into that and it was like initially kind of terrifying and they have all this funny jargon um, and they insist on using a lot of, uh, in my opinion, some of it kind of unnecessary mathematical notation. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it was a bit of a shock, Um, but I did fine um, kind of doing that and ended up, you know, really enjoying it as as a field and as a discipline and as a way of thinking through some of these questions I was interested in. And you're... Thesis work um, was on agriculture in some sense, right? On, on climate adaptation and, and agriculture. Is, I mean, I'm oh no, I'm oversimplifying, but that's no, no, general... no. That, that's, I mean, that's pretty much it. Um, I came in interested in this the problem of thinking about private adaptation. That kind of came out of my master's work, and it had kind of bothered me that people talk about mitigation and adaptation kind of in the same breath as these, like obviously these two kind of like forms of climate policy. Mm. When if you think about like if you think about the kind of nature of the goods they're providing, mitigation is, you know, it's reducing emissions, it's, you know, helping to stabilize the climate, it's a classic public good, right? You know, you know, and that those public goods are ones where you have clear need for government action and government intervention. And adaptation is totally different, right? Like most adaptation, and it's unclear exactly how much or what, but there's a lot of adaptation that's just going to be private in the sense that, I bear the cost of the adaptation and I get the benefits of it. And um, and in that sense, it's like, you know, the, the rationale for large government kind of involvement in adaptation is very different from mitigation, like just totally different. And that, you know, that kind of studying like this construction of adaptation of a policy space has like made me conscious of this. And and even in economics, there was not a, I, I felt like not a huge appreciation for this this issue that like, you know, people adapt, but they might do very imperfectly at the time. And so that's kind of what I was interested in studying was kind of trying to understand the idea of people as, you know, active agents in determining um, what climate damages look like. Um, But 
embedded in these kind of real, real world constraints. And so that's kind of why I honed in on this question of kind of adaptation in agriculture. So private adaptation just means that it's not in the public sector, or it means that it sounds like you're talking now about like decision making at the level of the individual. Well, it's a, it's a private good in the sense that for a lot of types of adaptation, I bear the costs and I get the benefits, right? If you imagine like um, deciding yeah. to upgrade my windows in a kind of hurricane prone area, right? Like that is, and, and in that sense, it's a private good. Um, um, and, you know, companies could be doing this individual that kind of doesn't matter, but there's no externality of that decision in the way that there is with when we burn fossil fuels. What if a city does it? How would you classify Yeah, that? and so there's definitely kind of, there's also types of adaptation that are that are public. And so like um, right now I'm kind of working on some like species conservation stuff and like that, it's absolutely like a kind of classic kind of public good. Um, and then, yeah, kind of seawalls or a similar um, type of, you know, it's really a collective problem to build that, um, those coastal defenses. And so that's where you need governments. But it's not clearly, you know, in contrast to mitigation, right? It's not, you don't need a global government, right? You don't need a right. kind of global decision-making. And that's why kind of having adaptation at this global level was always like so strange. Right. I mean, well, that's why I asked the question. I mean, it seems to me that, you know, at a sea level, yes, it's public, but it's, it's still at a much smaller scale. And it's mm-hmm. sort of closer to the individual yeah. level in the sense yeah. that, you know, the elected officials who decide to do whatever, you know, whether it benefits them personally, or it benefits, you know, those they're representing, it's still much more local than yeah than mitigation. Yeah, so it's it, 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 it's a totally different good, and you know they're just decided at these really different levels of, of government, um, and the the kind of the scale at which they affect people is, is different too. And so another problem, and I, I'm sure you've I know that you've thought about this one. You know, one thing is the different scales of adaptation and mitigation, and the different levels at which that can occur and the different types of causality involved. But also the other thing that seems to me challenging with adaptation or one other big thing that seems challenging is that it's hard to even know how to measure adaptation projects value relative to each other. I mean, unless they're in exactly the same sector in a very narrow way. So, so in particular, um, you know, if you compare to mitigation, right, and you think about all the different kinds of ways you could do mitigation, you know, there there's a lot of things you can do, right? You can you can have efficiency, you can promote renewable energy, you can go for it, you can do all these things, but ultimately you can measure them all in terms of how much carbon they're mm-hmm. taking out of yep. the atmosphere or not putting into it. Yep. But adaptation, you know, if you compare a project in agriculture to a seawall to a you know, something else, Mm -hmm. even if they're in the same place, let alone in different places. Mm -hmm. I know this comes up in, to get back to the technocratic problem of how people do adaptation finance, Mm -hmm. you know, somebody at some level is deciding, well, how do I spend this money? You know, what's the Mm -hmm. claim of country X or locality X versus locality Y and what benefit are they going to get from my dollars? Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a problem too, right? Yeah. And like that was, you know, like this question of, defining what is even just what is adaptation, particularly when you're talking about this like public um, type of adaptation and um, 
how do you decide what's effective? Like this was all the type of stuff I looked at in my master's. So I would read these, like, you know, these, these uh, NGOs would produce these documents kind of repeatedly kind of trying to define, define what adaptation is, you know, and it was this process of kind of like solidifying this, like this term that, you know, we think it's good, right? We, we want to adapt as some kind of intuition um, there, but then like trying to formalize exactly what, what that means, you know, and, and you, exactly this question of like the effectiveness of adaptation and how do you measure it was this question that came up repeatedly. One of the kind of forces at work was, you know, this argument that, well, if you're richer, you're going to be better able to weather the um, effects of climate change. Um, and so a good adaptation strategy would just be to, you know, do development, right? To try and do whatever kind of development projects we've yeah. done, just do more of them, or maybe have right. a bit of cli climate change productions in them too. Um, right. And, um, you know, and that was definitely one of the forces at work in kind of defining kind of what, what adaptation projects look like. That argument to just do more development because being richer protects you better I mean, that's an argument that you hear from people who are uh, identify as politically conservative, who are not necessarily all that sympathetic to the notion that the climate is an important problem. So you hear it from them, but it also seems to sort of align with the argument of the you know poorer and lower carbon emitting countries that you know we just deserve more help. Are those constituencies in agreement? On this, I, I guess I haven't run across that argument from the kind of conservative angle, climate, kind of climate deniers so much. Not um, necessarily deniers, mm -hmm. but people who are not so excited about reducing carbon emissions. You know, mm -hmm. are, uh, I can't think of who I'm, where I've seen this, but that's. Yeah, um, I'm not sure that I, I go quite to say that totally in agreement, but I think there are there are tensions between. To what extent is just like putting money into this good, right? Like we we just have these financial transfers from rich people to poor people. Like that's like welfare improving in general. Um, and so that's like a good thing to do. And then if we, um, you know, tie it to things that we think help economic development and productivity, that maybe is good as well. Um, in general, you know, that in, in development, I, at least when I was studying it, I kind of found to, there to be a bit of a tension, you know, between to what extent is a fund like really kind of earmarked for certain projects um, versus to what extent are they kind of more, you know, free, to, you know, would countries be kind of freer to allocate them if they if they saw fit? And that, that that tension kind of sits there for sure. I have to admit that... um. I'm think I have in my mind partly a paper of yours that I just read a couple of hours ago, um, which was about um, the uh, differences in how climate scientists and social scientists see the world. And in that oh, yeah. paper, I can't remember the title of it or who the co-authors were, but I'm sure that that might have been enough to tell you which one it was. That was it, it, was, it was, a, was it a book chapter? Yes, it was a book chapter. Oh yeah, Thank it was you. with uh, Justin Mankin and uh, Austin Becker. Right, right. Yeah, Mankin used to be here, although I'd never really yep. know him. But anyway, um, and, and in that problem, you talk about how one of the problems of climate adaptation or when how climate scientists look at climate adaptation is that, and maybe this is also true of adaptation finance, uh, you know, people who are doing adaptation finance, is that um, they, they want to address just the mm -hmm. harm caused by climate change when, you know, any given bad thing 
thing or or bad situation that has a climate contribution to it generally has lots of other contributions to yeah. it and it's hard to separate those out and it sounds like you're talking about yeah. that a bit here yeah that, that's definitely the tension you know where you say like okay well we want to fund you know we there's this moral restitutional claim on our on us so we we want to fund the like climate piece of this you know adaptation i think if there was a philosopher who wrote this kind of uh he was writing about adaptation and he said, well, you know, if, if there's financing for the top, like, third of a seawall, but not for the bottom two thirds, you know, that doesn't do a ton right. of a ton of help. You know, we live in this vastly unequal world and, and climate change impacts are going to play out in that context. And um, the extent to which kind of these rather marginal kind of financial flows are going to, like, change that, like, like, I don't see a big improvement, kind of. So, you know, a broader social justice view of the whole situation, or maybe this is the social scientist view of the situation, is that, you know, we're in a world where the situation of the global South uh, is a consequence of colonialism and, you know, resource extraction and slavery and all, all other kinds of bad things. And all those things are related to the climate problem in ways that are maybe obvious and some of which maybe aren't. But but then you have a situation where there's some kind of level of global agreement that, okay, we should do something about climate change, but we don't want to think about all those other mm-hmm. yep. things yeah. at yeah. the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was what I, that's yeah, what I, I took from your right. paper. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think, yeah, we, we have this hugely an unequal distribution of income, right? And, you know, that's always been framed as why is the South so poor, but another way of thinking of it, like, why are we so rich, right? Like, and it's this wealth that we've, you know, these countries have like amassed over, you know, centuries from various forms of of colonialism, resource extraction, and so on, and like, and a carbon intensive lifestyle that that goes with that. Um, And, you know, that then makes them both more responsible for climate change, but also better able, you know, at least to first order to kind of deal with those the, the impacts of it. Although I think now we might, <laughs> that, that was taken as received wisdom kind of maybe like 15 years ago, but you know, I think there'd be some more caveats on that statement kind of nowadays. Mm. As we see the US kind of struggle to deal with the kind of climate impact that it's doorstep right now. Right. I mean, that shows, I think that even a rich country can be dysfunctional to, yep. uh, any degree you can possibly imagine. <laughs> There's no yeah. bottom, even for a rich country, right. yeah. apparently. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if the political uh, situation uh, deteriorates enough. But okay, so let's see. Before moving on, should we say a little bit more what your thesis was about? I don't think we quite... Or oh, we yeah. I... Well, yeah, so I, I, I ended up kind of combining, using some econometric methods, so kind of yeah. um, certain type of statistical methods that, economists have developed that focuses on this causal inference question. So, you know, yeah. you, you learn in, you know, your first statistics class correlation is not causation, but there are certain circumstances under which it is. Um, and so then there's like this branch of econometrics that's really developing a lot of methods to, um, to be able to make causal claims from correlational yeah. data, basically. Um, and so I was applying that to agriculture and kind of looking at whether you could see evidence for adaptation kind of at these kind of regional scales 
Um, mm. You know, the idea was you can use kind of variation at different time scales. You know, you get this fluctuations in weather that are largely unexpected. And the big difference with climate is that the first moment is kind of this expectation. And so if that changes on these longer time scales, you would think that people should adapt to it. And so it was kind of trying to develop some with, I would say, mixed success. <laughs> so I think this is still a bit of an open question. Um, some uh, econometric methods to kind of get at that question. My understanding, just to translate partly for my own benefit, but maybe anybody who's listening to, that the econometrics, what people do is to infer causality from correlation. They're sort of comparing different countries or something or, or the same country at different times. You know, what was the weather and what happened, you know, in whatever else is being mm -hmm. looked at agriculture or something. So you're sort of looking at for patterns of, of statistical association across those. Uh, but, yeah, but... That, that, that's how it's been kind of mostly applied in the kind of climate context. Um, there are other examples, too, where they call them like natural experiments. So the idea is ideally you try and do these experiments, but you can't because it would be crazy and unethical in some cases. And right. um, but you but you look for situations where like the, the variation you have is like as if it was random. Right. So if it, as if like someone came in and like, you know, artificially kind of manipulated the thing you're interested in. Um, and then you can like compare those outcomes. And, and that then leads you to be able to make these kind of causal statements. OK, so before going on to the next uh, whatever happened to you af after you finish your PhD, I want to ask about the the in integrated assessment models, because I, I was you know reading through your bibliography and I know you've worked on this. And I've recently started to have an appreciation of what's in these models, what's not in them and what the critiques are, because um, it's really, uh, you know, it's a big deal because these models are really the the tool that the discipline of economics has used to try to say what the consequences of global warming are. And that's had a policy, big policy ramifications. And the overall sense that I've got from those in climate economics who are critical of the models, which includes you and a few others whose work I'm aware of, I'm far from an expert in this field, is sort of just that these models are sort of remarkably simple, well, certainly compared to climate models, but they're also a lot of assumptions that are kind of ad hoc but not only ad hoc, but ad hoc in a way that, whether intentionally or not, seems to really minimize the predicted mm -hmm. consequences of a warming climate. You know, that make the damages look small mm -hmm. compared to what they might really be. Um, that, that, that seems to be a, an overall bias of at least the dominant models that are used in the field. Is that a fair assessment? I would say, I think it's fair to say that's an emerging, I'm not sure if it's a consensus, but um, I would say there's a lot of reasons why the damages might be larger and like potentially a lot larger than what is kind of the common kind of, say, like mean coming out of these, this kind of class of models um, and not a ton of reasons, I think, why it might be smaller. Um, and... Like the, the, what we pointed out in this paper um, that I worked on in my PhD was, you know, like if you allow climate change to affect the determinants of growth, you know, what happens is like these, these changes in temperature have this like persistent effect on the economy. And so that means yeah. if the temperature goes up and stays up, you have this compounding effect year on year where like every year you're poorer than you otherwise would be and you, you're like at a compounding rate, right? And so 
you know, that means that by the end of the century, these effects were like absolutely enormous. And if there's any kind of really, you know, meaningful, like persistent effect of climate change on the growth rate like this, then this is just like a kind of first order issue, right? And it totally overthrows this like decades of kind of conventional wisdom about what optimal climate policy looks like. Like these models were kind of made in the 90s and then they kind of got stuck. Um, and there was, you know, it's just, if you imagine like they are kind of simple in a lot of ways, but like part of the reason is like there were basically like three people working on them, you know, uh, yeah. with basically like, you know, no funding uh, as far as I can tell. Not not like a huge amount of like public investment in these things. In my opinion, that's like a lot of what's going on. There was just no no community kind of working on this for a really long time. It's because it's not, it was not well rewarded in economics. This super weird, like, inter, you know, niche, <laughs> like interdisciplinary chasm where like, it's just really hard to, until, until recently, I think it was like hard to kind of bridge that. Well, I mean, so these sociology and history of science questions are, are fascinating, but let me just see if we, mm -hmm. if I can sort of articulate the issue a little more clearly for those like me who, who are not expert in this. So first of all, the integrated assessment models are basically models that are sort of predicting climate and econ economics at the same time, right? I mean... Yeah, like, the, like that, that term gets applied to a lot of very different like classes of models. There are some integrated assessment models that are very, very large. You know, they basically have like climate models like in them. Um, yeah, yeah. And then they have also have these complicated models of the economy. But these these models that, that estimate the this like, you know, climate damages um, are not that class. Like they're very, they're very simple. Um, two of them run in Excel. You know, it's really like this, This, you know, economists, like we said before, like they like to take things down to like the most essential component and it runs in like, what, like 50, right. lines, 50 lines of code maybe. <laughs> right. And that's fine as a tool for understanding, but I, mm -hmm. it seems like they were used somewhat predictively in a way that influenced policy pretty strongly, or at least policy discussions. I mean, maybe nothing influenced policy because we haven't cut any emissions, but but you know, at least they had some influence on people's thinking. Yeah, I, I kind of go back and forth on that on that question. Um, you hear the said a lot that like, oh, well, the economists were saying this, and therefore it had this like big effect on climate policy. But if you look at like Bill Nordhaus was saying, first of all, like he was working on this far earlier than like any other social scientist or like or certainly any other economist, like really taking it seriously as an economic problem in mm. like the early eighties, like before I was born, <laughs> you know. Mm. Um, and he was out there saying like. This is an economic problem. Like he wasn't saying this is this is like nothing. He was saying we should have a tax on carbon and it should be positive. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I think if we'd if we'd followed that recommendation in the early eighties, we'd be in a really different place right now. So clearly, we did not. You know, they have not informed climate policy to a huge degree. You know, on the other hand, to the extent you know, the Reagan administration was kind of really interested in backing away from any kind of serious climate policy. Maybe this kind of line of argument that it was really a very distant problem kind of helps support that. Um, yeah. Sure. Well, I yeah. guess what I'm I guess what I'm suggesting is maybe I mean these questions of of the history, you know, how the science happened and how it influenced policy are tremendously important. But but if we just back away from that for a second and just address the the intellectual problem of what's mm -hmm. wrong with them, um, and I want to try and phrase it and have you tell me if I got it right. So. Yeah. One thing which you didn't talk about, but I, I have heard elsewhere, is that, um, first of all, these models uh, don't consider the whole distribution of climate outcomes. So in other words, there's a lot of uncertainty. 
there's a mainstream projection and then things could be much better than that or much worse than that, either at the level of individual extremes or at the level of, you know, the climate sensitivity could be five degrees instead of three. And if you bake that in, you know, that there's some probability of really, really bad outcomes, then your expectation of the net uh, damage is going to be worse. And that my understanding is that these models didn't fully do that. Is that an unfair criticism? Uh, I would say it's like more general, <laughs> maybe than it's warranted in that um, it's only true of dice. So, well, to some extent it's true of dice. So, but some of the other, you know, like page has these like big uncertainty, you know, it's like run in this Monte Carlo form it, uh, over all these parameters. It puts these like big uncertainty distributions and the other model to fund kind of does something similar. Um, and so they will tell you kind of you do these Monte Carlo runs where the climate sensitivity could go up to like whatever. And, you know, the social cost of carbon kind of moves about accordingly, you know, so yes, it doesn't explicitly represent uncertainty, but the way you don't necessarily have to, right. That is a, if parameterized in terms of mean temperature, but the damages are kind of reflecting, you know, how the, the expectation about how extremes co vary with that change in mean temperature, like just because it's not explicitly represented um, in the model structure, doesn't mean that it's not haven't been accounted for in some way in the parameterization that's gone on. And that is kind of true, <laughs> but it's really hard to say. <laughs> Right. But the one, okay, so that's one, mm -hmm. that's one criticism. Maybe it's not entirely fair, but that, that's one, uh, one thing. The one you were just talking about, if I understood correctly, so I, I didn't read the papers all the way through, but I was reading um, some of your work on this recently. And based on that, as well as what you just said, um, in, in, in the paper that I was reading, you cited Saul Shung's work, and I know him because he used to be here um, as a student. And when he did this work, which showed that um, hurricanes in particular mm -hmm. have a long-lived effect. So you have a hurricane, yep. uh, it does a lot of damage, but in a net, it could actually stimulate the economy because yep. people have to mm -hmm. rebuild and there's investment. And what he showed is that in general, if places keep getting hit by hurricanes, there's a long-term reduction in economic growth. They never fully mm -hmm. recover from it and they stay permanently on a lower trajectory than they would have been. And your argument was that these integrated assessment models don't account for that. So they treat, not just for hurricanes, but for all, mm -hmm. any climate uh, impact. In other words, they treat each year as sort of something bad happens, you lose some money or whatever, mm -hmm. and then you go on to the next year, but there's none of this sort of long-term reduction in economic growth. Yeah. And if you account for that, you get very, very uh, much worse predictions and projections if you if you allow the growth to be reduced in that Ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just like a, a first order assumption about how climate change affects the economy. And I think it came out from, you know, there was really this idea that like rich countries are protected from climate change, right? That like, yeah. you could just like kind of name what these impacts were. And they were like, you know, agriculture, forestry, maybe tourism, um, sea level rise, you know, that you could kind of go through them and the kind of the main things in a developed economy like don't mostly appear on that list right like manufacturing and service sectors you know in the simple kind of model of growth um you know there's only a couple things that affect your growth rate and you know it's kind of capital stock of infrastructure and like machinery and like that kind of thing and then it's technological growth and what i attribute this to is like people can really envision a way in which climate change would affect those things that determine growth and so they kind of assumed it away um, and if you reevaluate that assumption, then it, you, it leads you to utterly different conclusions. The question is like, 
if the like does climate change affect those <laughs> um and if so how large is, is it um and i think there's a lot of interest in trying to pin that down but it's certainly i think it's fair to say that the like the range of climate damage estimates was probably way too narrow um yeah. by kind of artificially kind of ruling this out by assumption yeah and i mean the third criticism that's even sort of hard to articulate scientifically but it's really one of maybe the whole discipline of, of economics is the view that traditional ec- economics sort of has a very narrow view of what is valuable. I mean, in other words, you know, we have now this year, you know, uh, the whole West Coast is on fire, right? You're, I don't need to tell you, you're like, <laughs> I don't know how bad it is in Davis, but, pretty, pretty, I, bad. but, but pretty, yeah. I mean, I have a kid in Portland and it's like mm-hmm. the fire's getting close to there and um, so it, you know, and so there's some amount of dollars, you know, that someday we'll be able to say we're lost as a consequence of these events. But, you know, as this stuff keeps happening and this in combination with other, you know, our own, uh, you know, dysfunction as a society, you can imagine really bad outcomes, right? The, you know, Donald Trump gets elected, right? Democracy. I mean, you can't blame all this on climate, but in other words, you can imagine outcomes that economics just has no way to measure, Right. And when well, so you think I, about that. Yeah, I'm going to push back. I guess probably absolutely there are kind of outcomes that, that it's hard to measure. But I think I'll push back strongly on the like this uh, idea that economics only measures stuff that we're used to measuring in dollars. And like that, like, that's just not not the case. But I think it's a common misunderstanding. Like what should it what should appear in the damages of these models is everything that people value. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Everything, right? And that includes kind of health. Like that includes a lot of things that don't show up in standard kind of market, um, like GDP production measures, right? They're not things that are like bought and sold typically. Um, and so a lot, like a lot of it is health and like well-being um, and environmental kind of yeah. goods kind of show up there too. So to the extent people care about extinctions or you know certain landscapes and those are affected by climate change that shows up there too it's really difficult so so economists care about welfare right and you know recognize or certainly i would say most economists certainly when pushed (laughs) will will recognize that like you know what we buy is only a part of that maybe a quite small part like leisure is another one like just free time is something that economists really recognize as you know, people trade off, like, how much do I work and how much free time do I have, right? And, like, people's welfare is not determined just by their income. Um, And so I think that gets lost in translation because what we do is we want to convert all of those things into common units so that we can add them up. And those units that we convert them into are dollars. (laughs) And so things get reported in dollars, but what those things are measuring are not things that you're used to buying and selling. So um, so we, there are these particularly kind of environmental economists spend a lot of time thinking about these non-market goods um, and ways in which you kind of can convert the benefits that you get from these non-market goods into kind of equivalent amounts of dollars um, so that we can then kind of yeah. add, the, add them up and like compare them and things like that. And do the integrated assessment models incorporate these insights or? Certainly the claim is that these damages should be comprehensive. Um, like Page has a non-market damage function. They um, fund, have a whole bunch of non-market sectors um, like 
biodiversity and wetlands and um, human health and things like that. So they're not missing. The problem is, are they the right yeah. amount? Let's step step back from how we measure value and and welfare and whether it's in dollars or not. I think there's a sort of argument explicitly or implicitly from some sectors of uh, the activist you know, community, let's Extinction Rebellion, for example, mm-hmm. that whether they say it or not, it, there's sort of an, an argument of, you know, we can't possibly imagine that we can predict all the way, all the bad things that can happen. And we see that this year in 2020, right? Who imagined that we would have all the things that are going wrong in the world and in the United States that we have going wrong today? You know, and maybe there's no way science could ever, any form of science should, could ever try to predict all these things. But nonetheless, as a political question, when we think about climate, we have to account for, you know, the possibility of things going really, really badly due to all kinds of, you know, societal vulnerabilities that we don't necessarily see um, in normal times. The question is, can, do we have any kind of model that can predict the degree of sort of societal collapse that could really happen and that politically we maybe should be worrying about? I mean, I don't think the goal has to be prediction. Like, I see that because I do, I work on these damages and, like, I get pushback uh, sometimes. I'm like, well, you you know, you can't predict this. But, like, the the goal should be understanding, like, what do we know now? And, you know, how how should that then inform our decision-making today? The fact is we have to make decisions under uncertainty, right? Like, that's always been the case. And, like, economics and other... um, you know, decision management tools, like, you know, have ways of making informed decisions under uncertainty. You know, maybe, you know, the tail is long, right? And so, but that's a, that's a question, right? And like, we know, we've known since Bill Nordhaus's original work that like, we should be taking more action than we're doing right now, right? Right. You know, then the question is for any given policy, like, you know, does this make sense given how bad we think climate change is going to be? And like, right. for, but, for but a lot I mean, of things, I, I would say yes. <laughs> if you look at the IPCC, right, that's the canonical document. The IPCC puts, we put out these things that say climate is going at this rate. We show curves of how much temperature is mm-hmm. rising, you know, now or in um, 2100. And then, you know, we say, okay, there's so much loss of whatever per degree, and we get these, you know, spreads and there's a there's a critique of that that's like, you know, it could be much worse than that much sooner. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there's no I mean, so I'm just trying to give voice to that in some. I, I've explored, you know, the set of models, like, like I said, I think that have been more influential in policy. Like, I think part of the, this disconnect, too, is like within economics, especially now, like there's a lot of like really interesting work going on like pushing the boundaries on this you know and a lot of it's to do with the incorporation of uncertainty and kind of how you best make decisions under uncertainty with potentially like bad outcomes with tipping points um with risk aversion you know like what does optimal climate policy look like in that space and like that's all work that's like going on but it kind of it hasn't kind of you know made it into these like more policy kind of uh more influential kind of set of set of models Sorry, what was, what was the question again? No, that's that's good. So, so I mean, okay. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm sure we're going to come back to all these yeah. themes and the, you know the science and policy. But so let's just let's just get through the. Um, <laughs> so so you so you do your thesis on on um, 
on these questions in adaptation and agriculture and and econometrics and so on. And the, I'm trying to remember what happens next. Then I went. I did a, a one year postdoc at UC Berkeley in the agri right, right, right. department. Yeah. Um, and that was great because there's a lot of kind of really cool um, climate impacts people at Berkeley, inc- including Sol, who we talked about. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but other other people too. And there was kind of a lot of kind of thinking about climate change impacts, which is pretty new actually. Like if for a long time, if you talked about climate change economics, it was a lot about the energy and the policy side. So it was a lot yeah. about the kind of mitigation cost side, very little yeah. on this like kind of damages side. And yeah. I think that's really changed. Um, yeah. Yeah, that, that was kind of a growing um kind of field at that time so that was that was kind of a fun you know a nice year and then I kind of moved to to my position now at at UC Davis yeah and remind me you're in a department that is somewhat agricultural if I recall correctly it's um environmental science and policy oh I see right okay but we're in the college of ag right right agriculture and environmental sciences right and I know you're still working on a lot of these themes, um, and uh, you know we could talk about the various things we've worked on. Um, I was looking at some of it. Some real, it was really interesting work on. Um, I know you've been doing recently on social media and measuring how people mm-hmm. perceive extreme events in social media. So we could talk about all those things, but maybe rather than do that, um, because I don't want to keep you all night, I want to make sure we get to. Um, some of the topics that you and I have talked about before, um, which is not unrelated to all the things we've been talking about, but has to do with how um, how science is related to policy, how different kinds of science are related to each other, um, and uh, you know what what we're all doing uh, right or wrong. I think most climate scientists at least the ones I've asked this question to, which is quite a few by now, didn't really get into the field to save the world or anything. I mean, we're just mm-hmm. doing because we like science and it has a vague sense it's relevant. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, we like to kind of tell ourselves that we're sort of contributing to the solution in some way. And you know, maybe we're really not. And um, that you seem to have a lot of resonance with that. And um, so I just want to talk about that. And uh, it, it, reading through your papers, I could see that that message was already there in some of them. Uh, but... I don't. I, I wish I had thought hard enough to frame the proper question, but I. I, I just want to invite you to talk about this theme of how you know what is the value of different types of climate science, um, how it influences policy or it doesn't, and and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't. I don't want to kind of go on the record and think like I don't think it has value, but you know, I think it does. Um, but it's kind of this intrinsic value, right? It's not this. Right. You know, right. it's I think this. it has value too. Yes, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't the. That wasn't I think. The. I think what resonated for me a lot was you kind of firstly drawing attention to the fact that this is not a scientific problem in terms of why why are we not doing more on to reduce our emissions, right? Like this is, and it's not even a a question of knowledge for the public or for decision makers, right? There's not this kind of scientific knowledge gap that right. this is, you know a political this is power going on kind of a kind of raw exercise of power against the public interest um and that's showing up in climate and it's showing up in other spaces as well and as part of that you know it's definitely recognizing that firstly climate scientists are not 
probably even at this point the best advocate for climate policy. Like I think I heard in your your talk the argument for deferring a little to people more experienced in terms of the political battle, perhaps. Uh, and or that's, I don't think that's, that's original that, to me. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and you know there is the the expertise that is needed here is not a a scientific expertise. The next step for in terms of how we move forward on climate policy probably don't lie in, in climate science or with climate scientists. Yeah. That was part of my motivation to move more into the social sciences because my view was, yeah. I think, recognizing that, you know, the, the the big questions we need to motivate action on climate change on the science side have largely been answered, um, at least on the mitigation side. But there are still big questions, right? There were these big questions about how damaging is it, right? You have these models with damage yeah. functions saying, oh, we're going to adapt and it's not going to be that bad. And, you know, it's, you know, and I, so for me, that was like the big interesting question that potentially was like quite policy relevant in, in terms of kind of moving the needle on kind of the, the policy impetus. Now I look on it, even that area of work as, somewhat politically naive, right? Like, you know, like yeah. I said, you know, you know, Bill Nordhaus has been out there since before I was born saying we should have a positive tax on carbon, right? You know, like we've known it, like the, the, at least a sign of these damages for a really long time, you know, and I think now it's clear the magnitude is kind of large. And so this question of like, why aren't we doing more is not situated in this like economic argument at this point. Right. Like I think the the, yeah. the what would be in the public interest is clearly more action on climate change. You know, sure, there's a question on on the margin there about exactly how much, but it's definitely more than we're doing now. And so yeah. the first order explanation for why isn't that happening has to lie in this kind of the, the politics of the problem. So if we, you know, convene a small interdisciplinary conference, OK, mm -hmm. here we have conference two, we could make it a little bit better. <laughs> Let's start there. <laughs> like, um, and we ask, you know, is there any dimension along which, you know, if we wanted to imagine scholarly work in any field, you know, that could actually make a difference in scare quotes or, you know, that would have an impact in, on climate, you know, what is it? And, and if there's none, because it's a completely political problem, like, Let's we can now imagine sort of small perturbations to the to the political system, like, you know, Biden gets elected or, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> you know, it doesn't have to be court situation doesn't have to be quite as dire today. So imagine some realistic set of scenarios. You know what? What's the high impact area where the limitations are actually intellectual rather than just, you know, pure power struggle? Well, I've been reading a lot of work on political science and I you know, like, they, if it's a political problem, like, hopefully political science has something to say about that. Uh, and mm. I think that's, that's true. And so um, mm. I was reading uh, Leah Stokes' book about the yeah. like, policy feedback ideas. Um, and yeah. I think, you know, and thinking in terms of, as well as Maddo Mildenberger, um, who thinks about these political coalitions that you need at the domestic level to build um, climate policy. And um, thinking, like, one, if you have a good understanding of those dynamics and those those kind of real power relations and those political coalitions, then you can be smart about how you design climate policy and how you design a movement to kind of to be successful. Um, and I think, like to me, that's where a lot of the kind of interesting. 
Yeah, I mean, off. so so I got um, Leah Stokes' book when it came out, and I've only now read, I don't know, 10 or 20% of it so far, but uh, it's wonderful. And what really struck me about it, though, apropos of your bringing it up in this context, is, um, I mean, I know, uh, I guess she's considered herself, she's a political scientist, mm-hmm. is that her yep. disciplinary? Yeah, so okay. I mean, I don't know much about political science, but it has political in the title, so we can accept that there be some political, you know, yeah, yeah. content. But notwithstanding that, though, you know, it's obviously a work with a lot of scholarly depth. But I was really struck by how completely open she is about her advocacy. In other words, she's saying this and this is what should happen. You know, it's there's no question about what her objectives, political objectives, are there. She's no shame about it whatsoever. And I could not imagine a climate science book being written like that. Now, I know that we don't have political in the title of our discipline. So you could say, you know, we shouldn't and maybe she should. But still, am I wrong? I mean, is that normal in political science that people? My like my that? impression is that it's not. I think that's a very particular. <laughs> kind of I mean, I was like, it's just that she's stuff. young. Is it just her? Like, I was re- I was really struck by that. I found I it mean, very effective, yeah. and it's. I think it's good to be open about these things. I'm sure a lot of people. I, I, you know, I find it very refreshing to hear her talk, kind of for that reason. Yeah. You know? Like, um, you're kind of raised in this in this scientific or academic discipline, and like you know, economic has this, this flavor too of just like particularly this kind of like public welfare economics that that I have a hand in, you know, where you're like, we're going to analyze what would be socially optimal and like, you know, like an enlightened policy uh, maker will adopt that and, you know, move forward with things that are in the public interest. And like, it's just so clear that we're not in that environment. Uh, and um, right. yeah, just right. having someone just say that and then also provide something, you know, some kind of useful like um, theoretical structure to to go with that, um, yeah. I, I find really useful. And so that kind of political science is, is one aspect. I've also been uh, reading a lot on um, and kind of thinking a lot about these kind of social norm dynamics and um. how you go from this kind of contagion of ideas and contagion of norms. Um, and, you know, how do you go from kind of individuals who care about something to like a population wide kind of desire to do something about it um, and what what feedbacks might might be important. And so there's like, you know, there's writing kind of sociology and psychology about that. Um, I've been kind of playing around with, with some of, the, of those ideas. Um, and I think those probably those probably have a part to play as well um, at the kind of more like movement and kind of political support building level. So another topic that we've talked about before um, is, you know, the um, science and technology studies, the history and philosophy of science and how I had some exposure to that very early. And, you know, as an undergraduate, you've had much, I think, more exposure than I have. If I had to say one, the one like biggest lesson of those fields is that science isn't totally objective. It isn't independent of all other human stuff, all kinds of uh, values and norms and other societal baggage comes into it. And it's not to say that everything's totally relativist and there's no truth, but you know, that, um, that science is still done by human beings and it carries the marks Mm -hmm. of that. And, um, and that connects to the broader, uh, argument about science versus advocacy, uh, which, you know, a lot of scientists think that they shouldn't be advocates. Um, 
because science, you know, it, 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 you should be objective, so you shouldn't be advocating for anything. But there's this other tradition in climate science, which I, it goes back at least to Stephen Schneider. Um, I first um, kind of heard a clear exposition of this from Gavin Schmidt, but he was kind of quoting Schneider about how, you know, it, it's a it's a science technology studies um, aware sort of view that, you know, if you're speaking publicly, you're always advocating for something. So you should be conscious of it and be in control of it, because otherwise you're not in control. You're doing it badly because you don't even know you're doing it. So I've been thinking about that a lot, both because because I do some writing in mainstream media, but also, um, you know, just thinking about what, how our science influences the world. It doesn't, Stokes' book uh, just kind of brought it to another level for me. I didn't quite realize you could, you could go that far with it, you know, in other words, but it seemed right though, you know, when she did it, it was like, you really can um, just be upfront you know, about, but, but, you know, as a scientist, I think a lot of scientists really are, would, you know, have an, un, are, are react to that uneasily because there's always this worry then that you're going to consciously or unconsciously sort of manipulate your scientific results to fit some predetermined political conclusion. I think that's a tension we have to sort of reckon you know with I, consciously, I, I've been right? pondering because I've been doing some work on kind of, um, ecological climate change damages and so i've been talking to some like conservation biologists and yeah i'm having this feeling that like particularly because there's been so much political inaction and like it's just the damages are so clear and the kind of disconnect between the you know policy response and the public interest is is so clear that like if you look at conservation biology like they're all on the same page in terms of like the goal of our discipline is to prevent extinctions you know Largely, mm. by and large, I would say. Like, I'm not sure they would articulate that as political, but I would, you know, in terms of like, it's about the, you know, an argument for the, you know, organization and allocation of resources in society to, towards certain goals. Um, and, you know, they're kind of all like, okay with that. <laughs> like, no one, uh, and there is this kind of angst that, you know, it's going to, you know, make well, our that's... science really bad. And I just wonder if climate science is like moving in that direction and that it's just hard to be a climate scientist and not, you know, feel that like I just very clearly have this uh, alignment in terms of what I think, you know, needs to change. That's interesting. That comparison is really interesting. I mean, I don't know much about conservation biology, but it has conservation in the name of it. So it mm-hmm. kind of says that. I think if you were to poll climate scientists, at least ones like, you know, over 30 Mm-hmm. I don't think you'd get them to sign on to that kind of a statement. I mean, I think most mm-hmm. overwhelming majority would agree we should be doing much more in climate than we're doing. But I don't know that you could get people to agree to say that's the purpose of our field. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. people would say yeah, the purpose of the field yeah. is truth yeah. or to understand the yeah. climate or something. And the policy yeah. is another thing, you know, but it, it this is a real struggle, isn't it? I mean, to But I feel of... like you then see that, like, at least some climate scientists go through this kind of identity crisis, particularly kind of like either in the like mid to late career, where they kind of have this like awakening in, in terms of, you know, like I thought I, oh, was, yeah. thought I was thought I was doing one thing. Um, and it turns out I haven't been doing that. And I think you've seen it happen with uh, James Hansen, with Mike Hume, you know, and they've kind of like made these. Um, yeah you know, transition. And like, I, I feel like if we were just to teach more of this stuff earlier on in people's careers, like it would um, avoid some of the angst that like has to be associated with that, you know, that you're like right. you know, 20, 30 years into a career and like, you know, it wasn't, you weren't quite doing what you thought you were doing. Right. But one critique is, 
I mean, it's not a critique, but one, you know, thing one could say is, is I think, I think it's changing generationally. I mean, I think the students coming in now, a much larger fraction of them mm -hmm. are coming in with a consciousness of this is a societal problem and I want to do something to help it. But if we were to fully explore all these issues with them at the time that they're deciding to start their graduate studies, let's say, I mean, you know, do you think a lot of them would just quit because they'd say, well, this isn't really a science problem. So why am I becoming a scientist to deal but with But I think that's like a good thing. Like if a student came to me and said, I want to make a difference on climate change, my advice would not be to go do a PhD. My advice would right. be go join the Sunrise Movement. Right. You know, and like, and I, in fact, I've given that advice. I, I, like, I think like doing a PhD and being a scientist is great. Like, I love it. I love being an academic. But like, right. I also recognize it because I enjoy the academic nature of these problems as academic yeah. problems. You know, like I enjoy the intellectual aspect of it. Like, I just think it's frustrating for PhD students to be forced into this like false objectivity, you know, when they're so, they're so passionate and they still want to make a difference. And then we kind of like force them into this like kind of scientific structure, which is like not what they, it's not what they want to do. And it's not probably not the best use of talent um, for people that kind of want to make a difference. Um, right. But at the same time, we do believe that there's some value in the habits of mind and in the understanding of the problem that comes from what we do. And, and well, okay, let me, let me frame another question. So let's step aside from the question of educating students for a moment and, like, just think of you or me. I mean, I'm a lot older, but, you know, in, in either case, you know, we're, uh, you know, age notwithstanding, you seem yeah. to be in this for the long haul. So yeah. we're in the same boat in that respect. So, I mean, you know, if if we imagine, you know, a, a, uh, a world in which you could, you know, have some fraction of your time freed up, at least, right? You didn't have to um, write as many papers or teach as many classes or write whatever it is, grant proposals and so on, you know, the question that I struggle with is from the position that we are, you know, where we are already are in this, you know, position where, yes, we work in a field where what we fundamentally do as our core job is not going to solve the problem. Okay. We're academics. It's not an academic problem. Okay, fine. Um, it's a political problem. So, okay, yes, we can, you know, march, give money to Sunrise, you know, send, you know, phone call to get our candidates elected, whatever. And I also believe that we as scientists shouldn't try to dominate the debate, as you said. I mean, it's a huge mistake to treat frame cl climate as just a science problem. So that means that scientists shouldn't be the only or even the loudest ones talking about it anymore. It should, and I think that's what the Sunrise and all those guys have got right. And that's great. Nonetheless, it still feels to me like we're in a situation of some power and status in society, even if it's mm -hmm. challenged and not what we might wish it was or what it once was. And it feels to me like there should be some way to use that platform to some benefit, something we can do that takes advantage of our status without displacing anybody else. You know, that mm -hmm. some way to weaponize our, our mm -hmm. uh, you know, privilege, as it were. Mm -hmm. But I'm not quite sure what that way is <laughs> beyond writing op-eds and stuff, you know? Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I like, I definitely don't have the answer. <laughs> the answer to that and uh you know my solution is you know support like you know people who i think are doing a good job and recognize it like my 
you know, as my contribution to the solution is not just as a academic, but it's as a person and like, you sure. know, as someone who like politically active and like, you know, makes conscious decisions and, um, you know, I maybe just be more humble about what we can and can't do, you know, as individuals, but then make good alliances um, to build strong coalitions <laughs> to do something. Yeah. I mean, I, like, yeah. I guess the broader question is, what's the role of academia in the, you know, what's the role of the academy in the modern, yeah. you know, world where this sort of compact that there was post-war is not there anymore? You know, we don't, we don't, you know, still have some yeah, authority, I, but it's... I mean, I think this is like a more general problem too. Like, I, you know, if you look at this erosion of, of a common factual understanding of the world in our society, like it's clearly not just a science issue, right? right? And it it right. shows up in, yes, this like declining um, authority of science, but you also see it in journalism. You see it in, in government with like, you know, in, you know, regulatory analyses and like inspector generals and like, you know, they're just like a, a decline in these like authoritative sources of fact um, and the, the institutions that provide them. I think we don't know what replaces that yet, but we need something, right? Because, yes, you know, I, I'm like very much bought into like the postmodern kind of critique of like the, you know, mid 20th century science, how it's kind of defined its authority. But yeah. I still think science is valuable and I think it's a valuable yeah. guide to decision making. <laughs> and I think, um, right. you know, kind of sound um policy analysis is like also a good guide to, like i think you know if we're making collective decisions like they should be kind of reasoned and they should be reasonable and like there are there is a kind of form of expertise that should have advised that um and that's kind of what's being eroded right now and i don't right. know i don't know like on what basis like we rebuild this institution um but i think we should um somehow right. Right. So we know the linear model doesn't work where we just come with with the right answers about the factual questions and people mm -hmm. in power use those to make better decisions. Somehow it has to be something else. But we kind of, you know, haven't all figured out what yeah. something else I'm is. I'm not sure what this like kind of, I think of it as like the post postmodern world, right? We're kind of in this like postmodern world now where like everyone's got their own like new source and their own like, you know, view of like what constitutes truth and meaning and we kind of need to build some more collective common understanding you know but i don't know what that looks like yet yeah oh so okay so so i think we've circled around this but i i, I want to ask it as a as a sort of direct question um as someone who sits between climate science and economics and maybe some other fields too but those seem like the two big ones you know, what do you see as the biggest misconceptions or things that people in these fields don't understand that you wish they understood about these questions? I mean, about how, you know, what we do relates to the real world and the impact that our work has or how the different fields relate to each other, which is you know, connected to that. Oh, uh, that's a good question. <laughs> I feel like uh, I've already heard yeah. you answer it, but we haven't sort of confronted it head on. Um, so I think for me, like embracing my identity as like a political actor was like, that took a long time. You know, I think like 
it, it is like a privilege to like grow up and like not be super concerned about politics, right? Because it just yep. doesn't, you just kind of live in this yep. world where you kind of assume that these things are just taken care of and like the society is working to like, you know, support this like, you know, white, like middle-class existence. Um, and I was definitely yep. kind of in that vein. And I think it was my move to DC that got me kind of politically aware at least on policy aware for sure um of the, the kind of the importance of these things and like you know now i live in berkeley so <laughs> like you know i've become even more kind of political since then and i think people kind of being aware of that aspect yeah. of their their life uh and you know the the politics that's going on around them where that's like defined broadly right it's not just a presidential campaign right but it's about the distribution of resources and opportunity in a society um i think we should you know kind of encourage people to particularly in the sciences to like understand that earlier on um yeah it seems a little serendipitous so we kind of leave it to chance i think a little bit about you know do people kind of start to worry about this or not it's interesting that you said it took a super long time for that to happen because to me you're you're young yeah so well <laughs> it, it could have taken a lot longer <laughs> so how does but how does that affect your work i mean that recognition of yourself as a political actor does it i mean i don't know that it does um i would say like i think part of the reason i i like academia and i like being an academic so much it's like you know i am motivated by you know i like i enjoy answering interesting questions and like it's sure it's motivated by what I think the most important and interesting questions are in climate science or climate change broadly defined at any given time. Um, that definitely kind of influences the direction, but I approach them as intellectual problems. Um, and I think that, that makes, that makes me an academic. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, I think part of the reason it's so hard for a lot of us in, in, many fields in the sciences um in academia to sort of grapple with this uh question of of political relevance is that you know it's we're a certain type of people i mean it's not an accident that the word academic Mm -hmm. means in other contexts like the same word that describes the institutions we work in as just the label of simply what they're called Mm -hmm. also means you know, uh, irrelevant to anything real. <laughs> it's a, it's a, you know, we're kind of bookish people who are, dro- you know, drawn to that disengagement on some mm-hmm. level. Um, yeah. yeah. And it's hard to give that up and think, oh, I have a responsibility here, you know, in some way, you know, what I, to think that what we do, it's not, not that it matters. I, in some way, I think, maybe the problem is that we want to, you know, at least in climate science, we want to tell ourselves it matters without having to really do the work, yeah. if you will, of figuring out how and why. And if I, I wonder if the solution lies in like, if you think about models of different types of schools in academia and like maybe climate science just from like its history is like in the wrong type of place, right? It's in this kind of, you know, um, you know, these kind of pure science departments, right? Like atmospheric science and things like that. And if you think about schools like public health schools or law schools, or even like kind of professional schools of the environment, 
like like Yale has, or like Santa Barbara has. Yeah. Um, the whole point of them is is a kind of social application, and yeah. therefore the like I think you would feel less of a tension with this like you know pure science model in potentially I don't know, but like a kind of school yeah. that was oriented that way, no. and that the, the 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 you know part of this tension is coming from the desire to like solve those types of problems, but being in an institutional setting that's like you know either not rewarding or kind of not supporting that. Yeah. Okay. So let me run this by you. So I, I, you're dead right. It's a really good point. And I've had a lot of conversations about this stuff with um, Deborah Cohen, historian of science, uh, used to be here at Barnard, but now she's at Yale. And one of the points I, I'm, I'm going to try to, I'm sure I'm going to, I don't want to speak for her because I'm sure I'm going to get it wrong. But if I try to articulate the sort of critique she's voiced to me when we get in discussions about this, it's, it, it's that um, a lot of climate science historically, so she's a historian, she wrote a book about recently about the Habsburg Empire and how climate science mm-hmm. evolved there. A lot of climate science historically was very applied, very local in scale, mm-hmm. very close to what we would now think of as adaptation. I mean, people studying agriculture and health and all these mm-hmm. stuff about cl- how it's related to climate, as opposed to the sort of global physics view that that we think mm-hmm. of as the archetype of modern climate science with general circulation models and, you know, uh, mm-hmm. um, radiative feedbacks and all those kind of things. Um, and so, you know, the model, a model of the kind of academic department that would, um, take this more local and more applied, uh, more usable view, if you like, is a geography department mm-hmm. that integrates, yeah. you know, they have a social geography, mm-hmm. they have physical, they have human, they have all these different, um, some parts of it are close to anthropology. Some parts are closer to, you know, agriculture, some parts are close to economics. And that, and that the problem actually is not anything intrinsic about what that we're studying climate, but that it's, it's the, the modern trajectory of the field. It's come to be kind of dominated by us physics types who like this mm-hmm. kind of global level of explanation. And that's a kind of arrogance that comes with that. Is that a, is that a I critique mean... you uh, buy into? <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, I think you see this in economics too, like, and like in field in general, it's like, you know, the more general and the more kind of abstract you can make a kind of finding or a conclusion, like, or the bigger scale it is, you know, like that's well rewarded, um, at least in kind of traditional departments and, but not just in departments, but like socially rewarded too, um, in yep. terms of like prestige and like attention yep. and like all the stuff. Um, you know, that like attracts talent, right? Like, you know, high rewards kind of like talent like flows yeah. to that. And um if those values are not well aligned with like the social importance of that work, then we should change that reward structure, change people's incentives, yeah. right? And you can do yeah. that, like you can do that with funding, right? You just start funding different things in like large right. amounts. Um, you could do it with like, you know certain people with like, you know, a lot of prestige and like kind of moving in certain directions. Um, yeah. Or, you know, like there are ways to change those incentives. Like, yeah, no, you, one can thing do it. We... you just have to imagine what that different institution looks like. Okay. Well, we've talked a long time. I don't want to keep you all night, but um, are there anything else that we should be talking <laughs> about that we didn't get to that you'd like to uh, raise? I don't think that that was, that was pretty comprehensive. <laughs> Okay.
It only took like an hour and a half to go through my biography. <laughs> well, it was a lot of details. I think your yeah, biography yeah. was about five or ten percent of it, and we got <laughs> off on a lot of tangents. But that's how it's supposed to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you very much for doing this. Thank you. It was super fun. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure it won't be the last time we we talk about these things, but um, maybe the last one we record for a while. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, we'll. Uh, yeah, if the rec- hopefully the recording worked, okay. Hopefully the recording works. <laughs> no, and we'll edit it down to something uh, something reasonable. Um, yeah. So thanks so much. Yeah, no, th- thank you, and yeah, it was it was super fun. And, um... Okay. If those values are not well aligned with the social importance of the work, then we should change people's incentives. Fran Moore just said that. And it applies not just to climate science, but to many other aspects of life as well, doesn't it? Hope you got out of that conversation even a small fraction of what I did. Such an honor and a pleasure to talk to Fran Moore. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli. Our editing and audio post-production are by Duotone Audio Group, where our editors and post-producers are Stefan Wiener and Dana Hamm, and our audio engineer is Juan Aboitis. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel. This is Deep Convection.